Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, good night, whatever time of day or night it is, Project Kashmir's listeners. I've got on the show today an interesting academic entrepreneur who's in the United States, Marshall Poe, who's the founder of the New Business Network. New Books Uh, Network. New Books Network. Let's get the name of the enterprise. All right, that's fine. Yeah. The name of the enterprise, right, New Books Network. And Marshall, could you introduce yourself in the way you would if you've just bumped into a random person at a party and they ask you that famous question, what do you do? Uh, My name is Marshall Poe, and I founded and uh, I now edit a podcast business called the New Books Network, and it takes up all of my time. What we do is we interview authors with new books. Uh, If you happen to have a new book, I would say to the stranger, you should send me an email. We'll see if we can get you on. Okay, and anyone listening to this show regularly will know that I quickly dive in with some fairly basic questions like, uh, does it make any money? It's not obvious how someone would make money out of doing what you do. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about the uh, the business model just to answer that simple question. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll try to be as short as I can. I started this actually as a uh, an experiment to see if I could get uh, people who might be interested in reasonably esoteric books or books in general interested in uh, those books by providing them podcast interviews with the authors, because I always like to hear authors talk about their books. I always joke that um, when I went to graduate school, I went because I like to talk to people about books. And then they asked me to write one. And I was like, what? (laughs) I don't really want to do that. So it was an experiment. And this was in 2007, kind of right at the beginning of podcasting. And uh, I stuck with it and it grew and uh, it grew and it grew and it grew some more. And we tried various business models. And the short answer to your question is, uh, yes, it does make money now. Uh, and it makes money primarily through advertising to our audience, which is roughly 200,000 people. Mm-hmm. I just want to ask you a housekeeping question. Are you recording this at your end? No. No. Okay. I, I, I will. I just switched on recording now. However, I believe that the Facebook live stream which is working will be recorded so i do i do have everything i so. think it, it says on my screen that that live it yeah. live on facebook and recording the little red dot is doing that thing that it does <laughs> good. good okay so so um you gave a bit of the the bit of the history but i i interrupted you so so how does that how does that lead into um and it's it you haven't always been, I'll ask you about your history later but you haven't always been doing this but does it make enough money to like make you a living or is it still what you might call yes pre business model no it does make enough money to make me a a living it's a it's a growing business it has a reasonable amount of revenue now for someone to live a middle class life Mm -hmm. well so that's and but it's a small organization right Uh, i essentially run it myself with 300 volunteers Mm -hmm. and the volunteers are academics almost always who are interested in talking to people about books yeah, and as anyone listening to that, that immediately identifies it as being a slightly unusual, un- unusual enterprise, but clearly one that's got got potential. Now, quite often when 
I'm meeting a business person, whether on whether on this podcast or anyone anywhere else, I ask a question like, why would people choose to do business with you? Because there are a lot of restaurants, a lot of any kind of business, and usually the guy or the woman in charge can quickly nail down what's special about them, which can be very, very simple. They do business with us because we're right next to the school or whatever. It's, <laughs> right. There isn't anything too special. But do you have, is, is that much competition for what you do? Are there many other podcasts about new books out there or are they doing business with you because you're already the only show in town? I think that there are a lot of other podcasts that are about books. I, I mean, I know that there are. Uh, we are different than all of them because we're a network and we cover largely nonfiction books in 84 different categories. And we do a lot of interviews. So a typical book podcast might do one a, a week. We publish seven a day and we've published 7,500. So there's a coverage issue. People come to us because almost everything is there. If you want to read a book about, I don't know, uh, the French Revolution or hear someone talk about the French Revolution, we have that. If you want to hear someone talk about the Rwandan genocide, we have that. If you want to hear someone talk about the life of Ernest Hemingway, we have that. We have Again, it's very deep. It's a little bit like walking into a bookstore or a library. You'll just find everything there. There's no competition really for what we offer uh, in terms of coverage at the very least. We just do a lot more than anyone else in the space. And also I would say that there are a couple other differentiating factors. Again, we tend to do books that are, are more, they're, I call it serious nonfiction for the most part. And so if you're really interested in uh, the history of the Islamic Republic in Iran, we're really, Europe, where else are you going to go? I mean, we have new books in Islamic studies, we have new books in Middle Eastern studies. This is where you go to hear people who write about these things. Uh, there really isn't any other place you can go to hear new authors talk about their research other than us. So I, I think that's the primary reason people listen, because we produce lots of stuff, we cover everything. And the people, you know, another differentiating factor, I suppose, is that the hosts are experts. So the person does the interview about the Islamic Republic uh, probably is a specialist in uh, Iranian history or Iranian political science. And they're talking to another specialist. And so this adds a lot of value because this person can ask the right questions. And so that's just something that I don't think you usually get when in a normal kind of chat show where somebody has, well, I'm going to have an author on who has a book about the Islamic Republic, they probably don't know anything about the Islamic Republic, but our hosts know their subject areas. Yeah, so, so well. the, and of course, you're providing value in different ways to different people. But it's good you talked about the listener and what's in it for them. And anyone can start a podcast, but not anyone can start a, an interesting podcast, I would say, yeah. or reasonable quality. But you've also got the value for the authors and the value for the person yeah. hosting the domain the domain expert, but before I, I, I think it's very interesting. And for anyone listening, thinking about the general case of a business, it's a really good question to say, well, what, this is a great idea. I could copy Marshall and we'll come into why it's actually very hard to imagine how someone could copy what you're doing. But I want to go back a bit to the history of this project because it obviously started much smaller than it is now, but what was the main motivation why you wanted to do it in the first place, just at the start? Was it a problem you had that you thought you could solve or was it just, uh, were you just annoyed with someone who wanted to prove them wrong? Or where, 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 what's the why 
for getting this started? Yeah, there, there was an actual problem. I mean, I, I, was, uh, I was an academic. I was a Russian historian. I studied early modern Russian history, which I always ask people, can you name one thing about early modern Russian history? Sometimes I get Ivan the Terrible, but beyond that, you don't get anything. And I wrote books and essentially nobody read those books. And I was surrounded by people who also wrote books and were pretty good at talking about them and nobody read their books. And so it struck me that there's enormous investment being made in these people and their books, but there's some disconnect or disconnection, I don't know what the right word is, between the way they're disseminated and the public at large and other interested parties. And so I always call this the dissemination problem. And the way we do it now is we do it in books. But the problem with those books is that, you know, A, they're kind of hard to find, I mean, if you go on Amazon, how many books are on Amazon books? About a zillion. You can drill down a little bit with, you know, subject searches, but how do you know, the, is it going to be the right one? Well, you can look at the reviews and some of those are good, but that's tough. And then once you find the book, you're like, well, how much does the book cost? Okay, well, the book is $50. You're not going to lay out $50 on a book that you don't know anything about. It's about something you're marginally interested in. So uh, I always thought that there has to be a better way to introduce people into the content into the deep research that is that is in books. And so I worked on this in various ways. I worked, for example, I was an academic and uh, then I quit being an academic and I went to work for a magazine in the United States, the Atlantic Monthly. They have a reputation of doing relatively highbrow stuff that also does bridge this gap between experts and the public. Uh, what I learned having done that, and I also wrote a book about the history of communication is that people just don't like to read very much. I'm sorry, Richard, but I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, this is a brute fact about life. I like to read, you probably like to read, but most people do not have the time to read. So audio offers a way for them to get some of the value of these books or the, the authors of these books without having to take a deep dive in terms of their own time or money in the books themselves. So I call this the dissemination problem. And so I worked on it in various ways. And one of the ways I worked on it was I started a podcast in 2007 called New Books in History. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a historian, so I figured I know something about this. Uh, so I'll interview other historians who have books. And I did that. And I just wanted to see if people would listen. I mean, I knew I could do it myself because I'm, you know, I'm kind of a hack when it comes to computers, but I, I, I watch a lot of YouTube videos and <laughs> that taught me how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I did it. And it was at about that time that the Apple Corporation, uh, of really the blessed Apple Corporation started to aggregate these things and make them available to people. That was a game changer, really, because then you could just find them. And so I did New Books in History for three or four years, and it gained a pretty big audience. And by pretty big audience, I mean, I don't know, 10,000 people. Uh, But by the standards of a monograph, of academic monographs, some book by a historian or expert on Middle Eastern studies, that's a huge number. Right. And of course, of course yeah. the traditional way of disseminating a new book would be a desperate scramble to get a, a desperate and rather unpleasant process of trying to get it reviewed in a with a Oh, I remember this. Yeah, it's funny, Mick, because when I was working at the Atlantic, I worked on their book page. Some I didn't ever actually write reviews for them, but I did do some analysis of the book page and they just had an enormous room where publishers send all these books. Well, they're never reviewed. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just no way to get through that. Yes. And besides, the Atlantic reviews how many books and every you know produces ten issues a month. It's a great magazine. Ten issues a month. How many book reviews do they do in a year? I don't know. Forty. How mm-hmm. many monographs come out every year? Fifteen thousand. Good yeah. monographs, like solid people who really know what they're talking about. And so the coverage. I mean, there's just not being covered, and nobody can find out about it. And you got to, and also you got to subscribe to the Atlantic Monthly, which is you know it's reasonably priced, but still. So. 
yeah, I mean, th there is this inability to get, I would say the, the stuff in these books is trapped in text. Yes. It's there, but it's trapped. And so I was always looking for a way to get it out and audio provided that. So then essentially what happened after, to make a very long story, <laughs> not very long, is uh, other academics started to come to me and say, well, you have new books in history. That's great. We love it. Why isn't there new books in philosophy? Why isn't there new books in anthropology? Why is it? And I said, well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but I can help you start it. And the basic deal, the quid pro quo is you pick the books, do the interviews, and I'll do everything else. Mm -hmm. It was really at that point that I became kind of a producer or editor. Yes. When, when, we, when we first met, we, I, we were struck by, or I was struck, and you confirmed the similarity to the TED, TEDx model in the sense that uh, TED, when they started putting their conferences online for free, there was this explosion on demand. This they launched them in the Creative Commons, and previously had been a sort of exclusive and elite, cool thing for wealthy people, primarily on the west coast of the United States. And once they started putting TED Talks online, and the demand took off, people started coming to TED and say, saying, "Can you do TED in Europe? Can you do TED in Africa?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, and, they, and they realized they couldn't, but they said they come up with the idea of the TEDx license that they would say you can do it provided you do it according to our standards and it's not exactly the same but there's a i think it's I think quite it's, similar though i mean it's, as, it's as, yeah as my co-editor says you know, as leanne said once we succeeded by because editors all they say is no i don't know if you've ever been through the submission process their job is to say no yes we succeeded by saying yes you want to start a channel on islamic studies mm -hmm. i will set you up you know, people contact me all the time and they say, I want to start a channel about, for example, we're going to have a channel on um, uh, what is essentially neurobiology. I mean, it's, you know, neurons and the hypothalamus and all this stuff. And so people approach me and said, do you want to start a channel on this? And I said, I will do that for you. You just have to pick the books and send me the interviews. I will set you up, though. And so, like I said, we succeeded by saying yes to these people. Um, so I think it's very similar to TEDx. Yes, I, and and there's also other aspects of the TEDx process which are obvious to me that might not be so because I'm so deeply involved in TEDx. I have been in going to TED conferences and TEDx and organizing TEDx's for more than ten years now. And the quality control aspect of this is they don't just give a TEDx license to anyone, and you obviously have to pick the people who run the domain area suppose there was yeah new new new, new books on butterflies so you get mr <laughs> butterfly showing up uh but what what, what yeah. how, how do you how do you go about that quality control process so you don't get a a maniac or weirdo or someone who somehow destroys the credibility of your brand in other areas because they do it so badly right i i think we've had we have 300 hosts now, and I think I've probably had twice that number, probably a little bit more over the total you know, 13 years I've been doing this. And the answer is these people self-select and they always bring credentials with them. And they know that in order to do this work, because we've established the brand in such a way that they really have to be area or subject experts, or I, I won't let them do it. Uh, so essentially, uh, it used to be very informal. Now people send me these elaborate pitches with their CVs and packets of their writings and things. And I very much appreciate that because they're trying to demonstrate to me that they really know what they're talking about. They're almost always professors or advanced graduate students. Sometimes they're writers or journalists. 
but they'll include their qualifications. And that's fine for me because, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I mean, I respect the accrediting device with it, the PhD. And also if you probably have a, a, a professorship, you've, you've clearly done something. Um, so I, I just leave it at that. And then there's a whole other mechanism by which we train them to do the podcasts. And, and that's really the more important part of it, I think, because they don't know how, but I train them to do it. Yes, I, I suspect it seems important to you because the difficult bit of them getting themselves established as being domain experts, <laughs> it was their problem and it's your problem. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's uh, exactly right. Yeah. But, but it's also possi possibly the case that this might be a skill or a competence that you have perhaps as your academic uh, previous life uh, gave you that you had a skill you weren't aware of that academics have to be quite good at seeing through BS and, and yeah. recognizing talent from lots of subconscious. Well, I think, I, I think there's really something to that. And I always think about that more obscure channels on the New Books Network. We, we have a channel that I started, especially myself, I was an approach called New Books in, in Biblical Studies. And that's because in graduate school, I knew these people who had learned ancient Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew and God knows what. These people know everything about the subject and it's extraordinarily impressive. So I just wanted them to be on the network because they just do this extraordinary, really mind-bogglingly hard work. Mm -hmm. And it just seems to me that should be represented somewhere. Yes, and my, my, my much, uh, my late, father who died very recently said he was an academic uh jr lucas i'll post links of course to your new books network and to your wikipedia entry in the show notes so that people who are interested in following okay. up will be able to see more about it i'll also post a link to my, my my father uh said that most academics would rather be read than rich that this motivation to share ideas every now and again that there's an academic who gets famous but the vast majority never become famous they may be respected in their fields in the best case but they they're driven by the idea that they want to get their ideas about a subject out there and so in a sense you're solving the you're helping the academic achieve his objective perhaps yeah no that's exactly right i mean they appreciate the regard they they want the attention they've worked very very hard on something for usually a very long time they've probably found something that we didn't know before and that deserves to get out because there are people that need to know it again the problem is is that the way we distribute these things is relatively inefficient because they're trapped in text. So we try to make that process more efficient by meeting people where they are. And where they are is audio, because people like to listen. And these people are generally good talkers, because they do it for a living. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll come on to the importance of the technological innovation of uh, podcasting, because someone listening to this might be thinking, well, Google Scholar exists. I'm, I'm sure many people listening haven't spent much time on Google Scholar, but it's the sort of thing you're aware of. And possibly people could upload digital contents. The digital versions of books could be uploaded somewhere and you might be able to find free Kindle books or academics have uploaded PDFs of their works somewhere, perhaps on their own website. So what is the difference then between it being in audio as opposed to you know, online book re reviews in text, books in text, that a lot of content is available via Google and other search engines. And why is audio a better or 
different way of liberating the the text compared to compared to just using Google? I mean, I think there's a very long answer to that and a very short one. The very short one is people just like to listen. That we have listening organs. We don't have reading organs. We have eyes. And I think in an earlier conversation, you said you had a mild dyslexia. I had a severe dyslexia and I was almost held back in grade school. I still don't like to read very much because it's hard for me. It takes up a huge amount of my attention, but I like to listen and I'm very good at it. And I think most people natively are. Also, the other thing is, is that text takes up all of your attention. You can't do something else and read. Well, I mean, I suppose you could if you're some sort of universal genius, but I can't. And so uh, you can wash the dishes or clean out your garage or, in my case, edit audio and listen to an audio book or a podcast about a book or something like this. So you can kind of multitask in that way. I find it rather soothing and interesting that you can do these things. There's, it, it probably has something to do with the way your brain works, but I can definitely listen to something and do something else. That's a huge time saver. Yes, I, and I, I'm a, I mean, anyone listening to this podcast presumably is somewhat persuaded of the power of podcasting. Otherwise, they wouldn't be listening, although yeah. potentially some people could be watching the Facebook Live. And if you are watching the Facebook Live and you want to ask a question in about 20 minutes, I'll dive in and have a look. So feel free to ask questions if you want to. The fact that I, I grew up in a radio household and resented the fact that my parents didn't have a television <laughs> TV for much more where culture revolved around. And I think that radio, people say sometimes they prefer radio because the pictures are better. You're forced, if someone describes a beautiful scene in words, your mind creates a compelling, beautiful scene that doesn't have all the details in, but your imagination can in some ways be more free when you're listening the than when you're looking at a, a video it's like that experience of seeing the film of a book can be quite frustrating because when it was the book you had your own images of what the character might look like and once you have a film you're forced into a single definition of what things look like yeah i mean i think that's right there's also i should add and forgot to add that there's something uh, there's a certain tension in interviews because people have to speak relatively spontaneously and you don't exactly know what's going to happen. Unlike a book where the author has essentially planned it out and gone over and over and over it. So it's just the way they want it. Mm -hmm. Whereas in an interview, you're not quite, even this one, you're not quite sure what's going to happen. There's a kind of tension there that people enjoy. Like are Richard Marshall going to start throwing things down? I don't mean, you know, like things can happen. They don't, but there's something that people like about hearing two people talk. That spontaneity is important. That's definitely that's definitely an interesting interesting observation. And I was I was going to come back to things about your format, which you you said it's not a review site, and you right. you kind of program the uh, network. What do you call them? The head of a particular domain expert. You must have a special name for the person who runs. Do you call the, the? No, it's just the host. All the hosts—they're just hosts. They're all. Okay. Well, that, well, that's a special. It's not a special name, but it's a name. So the yeah, host. It's a host. Yeah. So, so you give the host a list of questions you're expecting them to ask, and they're not particularly reviewing the book. Is that correct? No, not exactly. Uh, I let's begin with the review. We don't do reviews, and that's very explicit. And I tell all the hosts this: if you want to do hard talk or tell people that it's a good or a bad book, you need to go someplace else. Because our mission is to give the author 
the chance to tell people what is in their book in their own words and for as long as they want. We have interviews that are two hours long. That's totally fine and allowed by podcasting. Nobody seems to mind. I don't give them lists of questions. I have a kind of general format that I suggest people use. So usually there's a, they begin with a few words about yourself, just as you did, like, what do you do? Who are you? And then we ask the question, why did you write this book? It's a question that I always find fascinating because and, you know, you're going to spend 10 years on something. I'm like, what? I got to know why you did that. Uh, and then we talk about the book. And essentially, the author does 95% of the talking. And I always say, be expansive. Just talk about what you found out and the story that you tell. Because the, at least in my opinion, the listeners don't want to hear from the host. They want to hear from the author. And so I always tell the, the host, let them go. Because they're, they're very well prepared. I mean, we even have a cliche about it in English. They just wrote the book. Right? <laughs> so they're really prepared to talk about this. And no one has ever asked them to talk about it, which is a sad thing, really. And so they're very eager to tell people what is, what is in their book in the best way that they can. But we're not saying this is a good book. This is a bad book. I mean, we try to pick books that are appropriate for the audience. And obviously, the people that write them have credentials. And you may want to trust them on the basis of those credentials. But really, you can decide for yourself whether you like the book. It's up to you. And in that sense, the New Books Network is like a bookstore. You wander in. There are lots of books about everything from every perspective. You pick the one that you listen to or read in the case of a bookstore. The bookstore is not saying this is a great book. They're saying you deserve the right to judge for yourself. And we'll help you do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the tact that we take in interviewing people. We let the authors explain what they found in their research and why it's important. Yes, there's a, there was a TEDx Kashmir talk by uh, Anya and Victoria in 2015. They had a blog called Regarding the Artist, and they used to interview artists about their work so it was graphic artists so picture primarily pictures i think they were putting on their website but they thought it was valuable to have a bit of the backstory of how the artist became an artist what they wanted to achieve with their art and i, I heard from them that this was sometimes controversial that they there were people or there are people out there who feel that you should be able to understand a picture without knowing anything about it. <laughs> and they disagreed with this perspective and said, well, they know it exists, but it's wrong. But I, I think it's clearly must be very nice for an author to have a chance to talk at length about, about their book, because as you say, they put so much time and energy and probably love and sweat and pain into creating it that to have a chance to talk around it must be very nice. Yeah, they appreciate it. I mean, very rarely does anybody uh, refuse an invitation to be interviewed. They're um, always quite quick. Yeah. I, I want to talk about processes in a moment, but there are a couple of other things. One is the role of the curator that in, in some ways there's multiple curation that your host chooses what books get onto their their domain subject and you choose who the, cho choose who the hosts are. So what is the motivation of the usually academic, sometimes journalist, who wants to be the the person who just will go back to Russian history because it was your topic, but so maybe pick a different one. I've got friends who have a podcast about 
agile management processes and they're interviewing authors. So basically they're doing what you do in the in their particular domain area. But why would someone come to New Books Network and say, I want to do a channel or a, a, a domain subject of rocketry? I've seen you don't have anything on rocketry. Why, would, why, why come to you rather than do it themselves? What's in it for them? Yeah, well, uh, let's start with the second. Why, why not do it yourself? And, and the reason is academics and graduate students, they're very busy people and they usually don't have the time uh, or the resources to learn how to do all the things that you need to do to mount a podcast. And I certainly get that. There's, I, In fact, I try to discourage people from doing that all the time precisely because we exist. So if you wanna do this kind of work, we will set you up and we will take care of all of the technical aspects. And then another thing is we will also give these people an audience because we're quite well known as a brand. So if you started your own podcast on, I don't know, the history of Romania, nobody is going to listen. I mean, sorry, it may be the greatest podcast on earth. It really might be great, but nobody is going to listen because you have no way to tell people about if you put it among the 750,000 podcasts on iTunes, it's not going to be found. Now, it might be found by area specialists, and you might get a few hundred listens. But the way the New Books Network is structured, uh, it's going to get to a larger audience because we cross post a lot of things. So you're going to get a bigger audience than you normally would. So first of all, you don't have to worry about the technical aspects. Second, we guarantee you an audience. And then the more positive reasons are you know, these people are very, very interested in talking to their peers about research. That's pretty much what they do. And so it has a kind of natural attraction for them. People want to talk about people, they're in, you know, things they're interested in and their colleagues. Now, there are other things that are, I don't know, you, could, you, could, you, know, you get to talk to people that you ordinarily wouldn't talk to. You might want to meet people in your field. You get to talk to them. If somebody famous wrote a book, you can talk to them because all authors want to be interviewed. So there, you know, and there's even a kind of more, uh, I think this is definitely true in the UK, by the way. So it counts at many universities as service. There are three things professors have to do. They have to teach, publish research, and this third one is called service. And often this is committee work and things like this. But one of it, the things that is usually counted as service is outreach. So if you can show in the UK, for example, that your podcast reaches X thousands of people accounts for what we call in the United States tenure and promotion. Mm-hmm. And, and I get contacted by our hosts in the UK all the time. You know, it's time for the review. Can you send me some numbers? And I will definitely send you some numbers and they can show that their podcast does in fact reach the public. And that's a good thing for them. And it, 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 it sh- that's the way it should work, right? Because they are actually doing what I think academics are supposed to do. And that is, not only educating themselves or their students or their colleagues, but the public at large. And yep. that's why I sometimes say, like, you know, the, the Numbers Network is a public education project or business. That's what we do. Well, this is very interesting because sometimes I have been asked the same question about the TEDx, you know, that why not just do your own event rather than be subject to all these rules that TED imposes? They're very good rules. I'm not complaining. The reason they're good rules is they enhance the quality of the the power of the brand because of quality control the rules embed a standard which means that it's worth doing the tedx but it is a 
and if you could do something like TED or like TEDx, you could try to do something like TED or TEDx yourself and with enough time and talent and resources, you might be able to do it. But on the other hand, you have a ready to go, you have a ready to go format and people have heard of TED and TEDx. And so the person who wouldn't necessarily be willing to come along to talk on Richard's cool conference would come along to talk on the TEDx stage because they they appreciate that that gives them a wider wider audience so you get that positive feedback loop that because it's a high quality product more people are ready to engage and because it's uh more people are more ready to engage it becomes a higher quality product and the but the key thing is attention so and how how does the attention thing work is that a search engine optimization issue that if you have a certain number of podcasts, the gods who allocate what podcasts pop up in different areas somehow notice notice more. And to take my friend who Paul and Justina who have the agile books thing that uh, I think that they've done podcasts before and they're smart, intelligent people. So I would say that they've got a good chance of doing it well. What what would get more attention to? their channel on new books network compared to doing it themselves is it is it algorithmic or well i think there are two things and i haven't really thought a lot about it because we don't spend a lot of time thinking about um attracting an audience because the thing grew organically we don't spend money on advertising one is just that we've done it for a long time i mean 13 years now and so we've interviewed 7,500 people, all of whom told a couple of people that they were on the New Books Network. Mm-hmm. So uh, almost by word of mouth, given the size and the duration of the project, people now know it has now gotten out organically again that we do this thing. Um, the other thing is, is that we produce from the standpoint of Google, a very high quality product. So we have a very high page rank that is in Larry page, not web pages. So our page rank is extraordinarily high because however Google does it, when they're deciding, you know, what to send you when you type in history of Romania, we come up very high because however Google does it, they know that we produce something that's of high quality. It's not. And there are two things you've already mentioned, but I'll draw attention because this is, it might be important in other areas for listeners. One is that the content will clearly be changing quite frequently as new books are being uploaded every yeah. day. So it's not a stale site, it's fresh site. It's not the dead. Other, the other is that it's highly likely that the authors are going to link back to you and an author that's right. Likely, likely to be linking from an, a university website, so it could be quite a high quality, high quality inbound link, and those two things by themselves are going to mean quite a lot. And that, that so compared to another site that might have seven and a half thousand inbound links that have been manufactured, Google can see that these are real people. Yeah, who that's have- exactly right. Yeah, that, that that's exactly right. We have probably at this point, hundreds of thousands of inbound links to the New Books Network and Google sees those and Larry Page liked them and he made it an important part of the algorithm. So uh, in other words, it's it's an honest endeavor. We are honestly trying to provide a quality product to everyone and Google sees that. And 
you know, so we, we do well in search returns and things like this. Yes. And so your original, so coming back to the story, and I am jumping around, but, you know, this is my podcast and I'm allowed to jump around. <laughs> uh, coming back to the spontaneity that you had, the, you were solving a problem you faced yourself in the area of Russian history and then other academics from different areas came along and said, where's the one for their area? And you just had the idea, well, maybe they could do it rather than rather than me. Was there a moment where it sort of hit you that this was an opportunity? Did, did it just, or did is it, it, was there a particular time or place where you thought, oh, oh, hang on a moment, this has got, there's no reason why this couldn't go over a huge number of different areas and become really big. Yeah, it was, it, it was a particular moment. And it was after I had done the, done the new books in history for about three years. And I, I was starting to think about setting up new channels. And uh, I'm a kind of entrepreneurial sort of guy. I founded journals and done things like this. So it did occur to me that the model, which I had developed and I'd proven the concept, as they say, in new books in history, that it could be pretty easily recapitulated in other fields. <laughs> and so I essentially did what I did when I started new books in history. I did some tests. I, I, these people contacted me. I contacted some other people. I, I tried to find out how much demand there was for uh, uh, a service like this. Because in a way, what we do is we give people podcasts. So the question is, how many academics or smart people who know a lot about it want podcasts. And so I had to test that and turns out more did than I thought. And then, you know, how difficult were the technical aspects of it? Uh, WordPress is a wonderful thing. And there used to be something called WordPress multi-site and we were on that and I knew it pretty well, so I could do it. Uh, audio editing has become quite easy and I was already good at that. So I could process all the interviews and then uh, there were all the podcast aggregators. Uh, I remember it used to be just uh, Apple, Apple Podcasts, but then I remember the first time I saw Stitcher. I didn't, you probably know about Stitcher. That was really the first one. And I said, you know, this is really good. And it's better than Apple Podcasts. There are going to be more of these things. And they allow me to publicize my podcasts in the New Books Network for free. So there's no advertising budget that's necessary. I can publicize it on Facebook. Twitter wasn't a thing back then, but I can make Facebook pages for all of the channels, which is dead easy. And then I can uh, use social media to uh, essentially promote the channels. And so it really was in, two, I think it was in 2011, where I saw it all. I said, yeah, this could really work. Mm -hmm. and, and it was at that point that I kind of decided like, okay, I'm just going to do this. Yes, and, and and I want to go back and forward, but nine years later, you're talking to a couple of investors potentially in this. So it's not it's succeeding at one level, but it's not growing like a rocket, is it? No, no, not at all. It's funny because I talked to this uh, ad buyer. I talk to people that buy and sell ads quite often, and he said to me the other day, he's like, wow, your timing on this podcast thing was just great. I'm like it wasn't 13 years ago. There's a huge important lesson for entrepreneurs listening to this that, or people who want to be entrepreneurs, that not everything is like in the social network in Hollywood. That sometimes no. it's a long, 
long journey and unless you're enjoying doing it it's a really bad idea because yeah. because you don't want to be devoting yourself to the overnight success that takes 20 years that you hate you know if, if you're enjoying it after as as you just said this wonderful story people come along and say wow that's so obvious that it was a good idea well it wasn't back then no it wasn't at all and you know there were 10 years in which the new books network uh, more like eight eight years well if you count New Books in History, the, the entire enterprise made no money. In fact, it cost me money. But that was another thing that allowed me to do it because it cost almost nothing to do it other than my time. Yes. And I was perfectly willing to, to, to devote that time because I, I could see, you didn't have to be a genius to see that podcasting was going to be at least a competitor for radio. Yes. And, yes. and, and, and because we were already getting good signs about the listenership. Is that yeah? So it, it was. I I I I'm certainly not any great business person, or I couldn't see the future. But I knew that if I stuck with it, and if you think about it, media brands take a long time to establish. They don't happen overnight. The New York Times was not the number one paper in 19th century New York. Uh, it, it, they take a long time to establish and build audiences and build the trust that is necessary to become a brand that people essentially use as a device to separate the wheat from the chaff. So if you're an academic and you want to listen to a podcast, you can go hunt around on iTunes or whatever it happens to be for a podcast, or you can just go to the New York New Books Network where you know there'd be something that's probably pretty good. Is it the best thing? Definitely not. Uh, is it the only thing? Well, no, but this one's easy to find and you kind of know what you're going to get. You know, and that's the same function that any good brand and media gives you. Like, you know, is the New York Times or I don't know, the London Times the best, are these the best papers? Well, no, probably not, but they're pretty darn good and they're available everywhere. And you don't have a lot of time to be comparing newspapers. So you go to that one. And that's kind of the function we serve now is like, you know, if you're interested in books and interviews with authors, this is a pretty good place to come. Yes. And if you, I, I want to go right back and you told me a bit about your family background uh, yesterday when we were speaking in preparation for this, well, not in preparation for this, this led, it wasn't our intention when we got on the phone yesterday to talk about this, but the idea of doing this came out of it. You, you mentioned earlier in this discussion that you were an entrepreneurial type of person. Where did that come from? Was it your schooling, your family necessity? Was it no one telling you not to be an entrepreneur because quite often entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs in opposition to something. And I, I always think that, you know, anyone can be anything, but we, some people are born with natural predispositions towards some things rather than others, but anyone who's really motivated can do most things. And wh how, where do you fit in that pattern? I, th I think uh, I don't have any entrepreneurs in my background at all. Uh, <clears throat> I think if I had to guess, it was living in the Soviet Union in the 19, late 1980s, uh, well, mid 1980s, late 1980s. And, and what I discovered there that there were all kinds of problems and everybody recognized that there were huge problems and people wanted to solve them, but there was nothing they could do, nothing. And this was just tremendously sad to me. And so I came back to the United States with a real appreciation of the possibility that if you see a problem, and you can solve it. Uh, you really can. It's going to be a long, it can be a long and hard and require sacrifice, but uh, 
if you if you see a problem, you can solve that problem. And, and so I, I've I've you know I guess my first entrepreneurial activity was I founded a journal in Russian history. Um, and one of the things I noticed was that the major journals in Russian history, and this is really, as we say in the United States, inside baseball, because nobody would care. It's not interested in Russian history, but they reviewed a lot of books, but they didn't review any Russian books. Very rarely did they review a Russian book in Russian by Russians. I'm like, and that's where most of it is. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody would know this. But if you look at American journals, they just didn't review these books. So I started a journal with two other people uh, that was, I remember it very well because I had to prove to one of them that they didn't. So we got all these journals out and we counted. Like, look, there are no Russian books. And so we started a journal that's very successful now where we just essentially uh, reviewed Russian books about Russian history. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can do this. And I found a publisher and it was all very exciting. We actually did it and I built it. And it was like with these two people and I was like, this is incredible. I like, really gave me a kind of like sense of satisfaction. I never made a penny off of it. <laughs> But I had a great sense of satisfaction having solved this problem. How old were you, how old were you when you did this? I think I was about 35 when okay. I did that. Yeah. And and it's very it'll be interesting. A lot of our listeners uh, in Poland, uh, where I live, and I've I've lived most of my life. I've become a Polish citizen, and I'm you know very happy and proud to be Polish as well as having my British roots. And when I first came to Poland in 1989, a lot of people thought in the West of Europe that we, the clever business-orientated Westerners, needed to teach entrepreneurship and business to the poor poor people of Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union because they wouldn't understand it. And I felt, which I sense you're just going to 100% agree with, that you need to be more entrepreneurial to survive in a communist society than you do to survive. Oh, I, I have so many anecdotes I could tell you about living in the Soviet Union. Like I remember I broke my glasses once and like the things that these people had to do, my Russian friends to get my glasses fixed very quickly were pretty incredible. None of them were, <laughs> none of them were by the book, none of them, but they knew just what to do. Uh, and, and it happened and their favors were traded and people were talked to and my glasses were fixed just like that. So I mean, they know all the problems. Uh, and, and if you, again, I don't mean to sound like a kind of, well, I am kind of a booster for markets and things like this, but if you give people the freedom to solve their problems and some resources, they'll solve them. And, and it's, a, for me personally, it's just, I mean, people say, so it's not about the money. It's just about the satisfaction you get out of solving, becoming the solution to somebody's problem. That is, there's nothing so satisfying as that. Yeah. And I get notes all the time from the New Books Network. Like people just write me and say, you know, I'm a graduate student and I had to read all these books, but instead I just listened to all these interviews. It was the greatest thing ever. I'm like, I just love you. You can come to Thanksgiving at my house. You know, it's like, it's just so satisfying to know that we saw, we solved this problem for these people. Yes. If there's some money in it, that's great too. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, th- I think the, the financial side of this is something that we will come back to in a, in a little bit, but the, the idea that it's uh natural human instinct to solve problems is something that I find very interesting. And I think you could go back to cave cave men and cave women, how they modified their environment in order to pre-trade yeah. even. They were modifying their environments to make things better for themselves, you know, putting a, a bit of shelter up. That And there are some animals that use tools to a tiny degree, but it's a very 
distinctive thing of human beings. I, I sometimes think as an entrepreneur or someone who's interested and someone who's interested in entrepreneurship, it would be an interesting exercise to try and write a book about animal entrepreneurs, like entrepreneurial yeah. animals. And there's a famous saying that it's impossible to imagine two dogs trading their bones in a way that they'd both be satisfied. There's something, right. there's something about humans trading which is different but you were 35 before in the soviet union yeah right before you, yeah. Before you got the idea that you well could i was 35 stop. when i founded the journal but i i was kind of of the opinion in my 20s when i first went to the soviet union that there was something just drastically wrong about the way they th had things set up because there were dire problems and there were super smart people who were super capable Mm -hmm. But for some reason, they couldn't organize themselves in such a way as to fix the problems. And I and then I came back to the United States and I was kind of a typical academic in that sense. And I was superior and I laughed at people in business school and, you know, all that stuff. When I came back, I didn't anymore. I was like, why didn't I go to business school? <laughs> because there are all these problems. And and it's so satisfying to solve them with other people. You know, it's like it's just a really very satisfying thing to do. And so I I. I brought that to everything I did in academia after that. So I, I taught in all kinds of different ways because I didn't like the way people taught, teach, or taught. And I, you know, I did lots of different experimental things. And there so were other experiments that I did before the New Books Network that failed. I was trying to solve problems for people. I had to hit upon the right one. I was casting mm -hmm. about, you know, I was like Edison in the lab, like, we'll try this now. Well, let's burn this, you know. And I and so I was just trying things and this is the one that worked. <laughs> Edison's, uh, there was a talk at TEDx Katowice about one of Edison's less well-known ideas about outdoor concrete pianos. And, <laughs> and uh, an Israeli called Dan Kaufman and a Polish guy called Wukasz Szudmuk have recreated these outdoor pianos. That's and they're, great. And they put, they're all over. We were going to support one at the Jewish Culture Festival, but that's been called off because of the virus. Right. Uh, if you're listening in a thousand years time, this is the time of the- <laughs> Yeah, right, you're uh, living in historic times. This is it. Uh, but but, but, uh, but I, I just, you you said you were a typical academic, but you weren't born with a family pushing you towards academia. I'm, I'm looking to this sort of self-starter. You you mentioned you were very interested in sport when you went to university. Yeah, yeah. Your personality type, you hinted that you don't, accept the world the way it is if it's something's annoying you you had different experiments or you challenge yeah. things but in terms of what you were like prior to starting the business could you just give a few outline a few features of what you were like because our listeners are people who are interested in entrepreneurship and i, I say to them anyone can be if they want to be but what were you like before you well i think i i think one one of the things about me is i love sports and i was pretty good at them and never as good as i thought i was but that's true of most people that are in sports uh, and I spent a lot of time on them and I really enjoyed the self-improvement aspect of them. I was never afraid to try a new sport. And, you know, I always say that one of the home in my tombstone, it should say like, I, I was the founder of the, uh, uh, the, the Institute for Advanced Mediocrity. Like I can do bunch, I can do so many things in a mediocre way. It's pretty incredible. Uh, so I was never afraid to learn something new. And this was true in sports as well. So I played all the sports and I didn't play any of them in a really super, I played basketball well, but not, you know, not, not well enough to be paid. But, you know, I, I, and I, I just enjoyed that kind of learning aspect. Well, I'm learning how to play tennis. Okay. So I learned how to play tennis or I'm going to learn, you know, I, and then I got into the academic. I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to study history. I'll learn Russian. Okay, we'll do that. Or I'll learn old church Slavic. Well, I'll do that. And 
you know, these kinds of things appealed to me in a way. Uh, so, uh, but I, I wasn't ever the kind of person that thought that things had to be the way they are. Um, and, you know, I think you would talk to people who would say earlier, uh, I didn't play well with others often. And that was definitely true. Um, and I have a lot of regrets about that. But, you know, I learned over the course of time how to work well with others and uh, I kind of mellowed out a little bit. Uh, and, and that's served me extraordinarily well. So, yeah, you know, and again, I always had this, I, I was always willing to jump off the cliff. You know, if I thought there was something really worth doing, I was always like, okay, let's do that. You know, I, let's don't wait, let's just do it and stop talking about it because I'm not really interested in the theory of it. I'm more interested in actually doing it. And I've done that repeatedly in my, you know, in the New Books Network, I've done it again and again and again. So if somebody brings me an idea and it's like even half-baked, I'm like, well, what? I don't know if it's going to work. Why don't we try it? Well, what's the worst that can happen? It will fail. <laughs> That's not too bad. <laughs> These are sort of long-term, long-term looking at the world. There wasn't a sort of a breakthrough moment or a change. Obviously, the Soviet Union changed, changed your feelings and thoughts about the role of businesses and what they were doing in society but the idea the certain things like being competitive believing in self-improvement the why not rather than why question what's the worst that can happen if it fails these are important aspects of an entrepreneurial yeah i think those are all true that's a nice catalog Uh, i I think all of those things are true i am a competitive person and i do always ask you know why not rather than why and and uh and, and I'm willing to take risks uh, and, I've, and I've done it repeatedly uh, and some of them work out and some of them don't work out, but you know, it's a pretty forgiving world we live in. I mean, that's another advantage of being a, stor- a historian is because it can always be a lot worse. I mean, really a lot worse. So what's the worst that can happen? Well, it's not very bad actually. Yeah. And also, you mentioned the tombstone epitaph, which sounded a bit sort of, I, I wouldn't call it a humble brag, but the, the master of medieval. Yeah, it is a humble brag. I would call it a humble brag. <laughs> it, uh, the, being a general, a nicer way of describing that would say you're a generalist, but be, being good enough at things to recognize that someone can be better and to have a little bit of knowledge is extremely useful because if you're a business person, you don't have to be an accountant, you don't have to be a salesman, you don't have to be a, a project engineer, but you do need to work with people who are better than you and be able to understand enough to sense who's BSing you and who... Yeah, that, that's right. And, and you know, when I, when I talk to investors, for example, in the New Books Network, one thing I'm always very interested to know is if they think they know anything about the podcasting business and how podcasts are produced and distributed, and mostly they don't. And the ones that are willing to learn which is to say, listen to me, I'm always very willing to work with them. The ones that don't, I'm not interested in working with because they, they have these ideas about it, which are not true. And since I've done it for 13 years and I've done every aspect of it, like I taught myself how to design websites. Am I good at it? No, not really, but I did it. And you can actually see it, the New Books Network website. I designed it and I built it and so on and so forth. Audio editing. I never took a class. I watched a lot of YouTube videos, but I've done it. I've edited now. I believe this is true. This is just a brag brag. <laughs> I believe I've edited and published more podcasts than any person alive. I've edited 7,500 of them and published 7,500. So that's just a brag brag. Uh, so I'm pretty good at audio editing now. You know, I, I know how to do it. 
have you, have you entered yourself to the Guinness Book of Records? No, I haven't thought about that. I'm not really into the whole record thing. I, well, uh, <laughs> I heard on the news today that there's a street in some town in the United Kingdom which has lost its status as having the steepest... Yeah, no, I, I heard that too, yeah. I heard that. So. In the world, and I think it's to somewhere in New Zealand, but I I don't... It, it, it might be good for the business. But, but one not. thing, I mean, this does relate to uh, what I, I don't think I'm virtuosic at anything, but I have incredible respect for people that have a virtuosity. I, I really do. And I, I think they're special people. They're not like me. And I, and I can name some of them. Like I think David Foster Wallace is a virtuosic author. I, mm. I really do. He's not like us. And I think a lot of the people that I get to work with on the New Books Network are virtuosic in their own way. And I just personally, I just get this I, it's really just an incredible, I just feel very honored to like, even to be able to talk to them or work with them because they've done these incredible things, which are they're just mind boggling to me and they're impressive. And they, you know, they're, I just like, I like being in their presence. Yes. And there are people like Reed Hoffman who founded LinkedIn and has a big successful Silicon Valley career who has a podcast now called Masters of Scale. And He's very wealthy, he's a billionaire, and he's thrown resources at it. So he's hired a, a big team to do it. And it's a very good podcast. And because mm-hmm. he's famous, he has excellent people on the podcast. And he's a smart guy. So there are lots of good things about it. But you can sense that he's he's spending money. And I think that the there's this concept of diminishing marginal returns. So that I should imagine for the extra few thousand dollars he spends per episode, it's a little bit better than... Yeah, probably, probably what you're doing, but it's probably not the amount. Of, it's only because he's very wealthy and he doesn't need right. any, any money out of it that he can afford to do that. And it's probably more about boosting his brand and or, or yeah. contributing to the world of entrepreneurship education than making a you know making him any return in financial terms that's motivating him. Yeah, well, I mean. Y- when I started the entire project and even before, I, I knew that it really had to be done incredibly efficiently or it couldn't be done at all because I wasn't in a position to really invest any money in it. So I've done absolutely everything possible to hold costs down. I mean, I essentially do all this myself. Like I do all the audio editing. Could I hire somebody to do that? Well, I could. Uh, I don't really want to at this point, should I, could I add people who, for example, spent money on promotion? I'm a little bit hesitant to do that because I'm, I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure that money would be well invested. I certainly understand I can't do it. Should I hire somebody to build a new website? Well, I should. The old website is, it's, it needs a refresh, but I don't have $75,000, nor do I think it would be, it probably would be a good investment, but I'm just more interested in producing a high quality product at a very low price and working in building the audience slowly and organically. It's always sort of been my take on things. Yes. And, you know, this is, I, I, a lot of the businesses I've built have had this, almost all of them have had this sort of bootstrapper type approach of making enough money in the present tense to do the next thing rather than a splurge of outside Capital and the ones with outside capital have often gone pear shaped because that has been that sense of frugality and the the DNA, which isn't to say. And we are talking of uh, there's no particular secret. I don't think about the idea of possibly somehow me getting involved, but certainly figuring out 
higher value things you could do with your time is one reason yeah is, that's right is one reason to consider uh outsourcing some things but then you at least you know how you'd be able to see very rapidly if an external uh sound engineer could efficiently help you there'd be a high quite a, a a low limit for how much they could overcharge you because you know exactly how much work they're doing Right. I mean, and I think when I've talked to people about raising money before and people have approached me and said, you know, do you want to help raise money? This is a, a thriving business. We think it could be a great international brand and so on and so forth. And, I'm, and I always say, raise money for what? Like, exactly. what are you going to spend the money on? Exactly. Uh, and, and you need to convince me that that money would be well spent and would, in, in fact, help the listeners continue to solve their problems in a better way. And unless you can tell me how that money would be spent, I'm not going to take your money. No, because, it's, a, it's, yeah. a it's, a, it's a mistake to take money you don't need because you just lose lose control and you have obligations to the investors that you didn't have before. And that that's a problem. But there is, there is an issue of sustainability. We, we, when we were speaking before the podcast, you said one of your objections is to make sure this outlives you. And if yeah. you had an accident or yeah. uh, became a Buddhist and no longer believed in it, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Buddhists can can do this. I don't want to offend any Buddhists listening. But if you had a a, rap, a major upheaval in your life that meant you didn't couldn't or didn't want to carry on doing it anymore, it would collapse right now. So one reason to outsource in a way that's sustainable is to make it have a life apart from you. Yeah, this is really my primary goal right now because I'm 58. You know, I'm, I have a lot of years left. It's true. But if I did kick the bucket tomorrow, it would all end. I don't particularly like that. It's very precarious, obviously. And I do think that the project does enough good, as in it's socially responsible, that it ought to continue. So I sort of made it my mission to put it on a firm financial basis. And uh, actually, I should give a hat tip to somebody named David Bradley, who uh, he bought the Atlantic in about 2000. And then I was hired there. And he made it his mission to put the Atlantic magazine on a firm financial basis. Uh, because it had lost money for years. And I think it would be a great tragedy if something like the Atlantic died. But he knew, because he'd been an entrepreneur before, he'd started companies, that he had to find a way to make it support itself. I mean, sustainable means profitable. That That's just the bottom line. There is no space between those two things. And so what I, I view my goal right now is to set it up in such a way that it produces enough revenue to continue to support itself potentially for a very, very, very long time. So that, yeah. that's sort of what, you know, I would like to leave it in that state. Yes, ab absolutely. And, you know, a business that doesn't make a profit is a hobby. And hobbies, yes, are, great, right, yeah. hobbies are great, but they're not necessarily sustainable. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, exact, that's exactly my feeling. And so I've, I've, for the past few years, since we've actually started to, you know, really make a pretty significant amount of money, I've, I've and here you, you mentioned that, I, I'm now out of my depth because I was good at setting this up, but I'm not the right person to run it as a sustainable enterprise, really, because I'm not a business person. I don't understand finance very well. I, I've never hired anyone in my life. I, you know, I can barely do my own taxes and I hate doing them. So, but there are people with the skill set who could be the CEO of a company like the New Books Network or the CFO or whatever it happens to be, who would just be able to do what I do, kind of or what, what I think a person should do in the company effortlessly, because they've done it before. I always say that the best proof that somebody can do something is that they've done it before. I've not done this. So, yeah. yeah. 
But that's a problem that people who set up something that succeeds always face. You're not the first person. No, in, not at all. At, at all. And, and there, are, there are aspects of this which I'm not sure how much detail of the processes you talked to me about, the, your, your processes for getting a new host good at doing it. Maybe you could talk a little about this. And the reason I want to draw attention to this is that it's a very good way to think of any business or organization as a series of processes, whether it's a university and how do they recruit students? How do they examine them? How do they house them? How do they feed them? How do they, yeah. them? How do they teach them? There's a set of processes. And what, 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 could you reflect on any of the things you've learned about setting up the processes for hosts? Yeah, so this has changed over time because at the beginning we had no brand at all and podcasting wasn't well known. So either people would come to me and very rarely and say, I like new books in history. Could you start new books in philosophy or something? Uh, that didn't happen very often. Or I would have to go out and find them and convince them that this was possible and that it would be a, a, a valuable thing to do. And so we actually had recruiting drives. And here another uh, technology really helped. I started a listserv on something called HNET a long time ago for Russian historians. And so I knew that academics watch these listservs very closely. So I did essentially, I issued calls for people who might want to be hosts on the New Books Network. And over the past 10 years, we've sort of stopped doing that because now we have reached the stage where people just approach us. So, I mean, even just this morning, I got a note from a professor who said, I would like to be a host on New Books and Sociology. Uh, and, and, you know, I have a spreadsheet on my desk uh, that I think track has tracked it for the last couple of years and it has 700 and some names on it. So these come in regularly over the transom. And then I have a dialogue with these people. You know, I send them, actually it's sort of funny because one of the things I've learned to do is to tell people that they think they want to do this, but they probably don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's like that's TED and TEDx. It's like yeah. to go through a horrible application process, which is, which is designed to put you off. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, the first email that you get back in the onboarding process says there's no pay and it's hard and it's going to take some of your time and you probably don't want to do this. <laughs> so if you get through that email and then on the process you've been warned, then some other things happen and I start to kind of uh, this more or less formal onboarding process with them. And, you know, honestly, they're uh, for, uh, you know, I would say 30% of our hosts work out really well, 70% don't, because they thought they wanted to do it, and they got past the warning, but then they decided they didn't really want to do it. And that's fine. They're volunteers. I totally get that. But uh, we're trying to find that 30% that really gets into it and really likes it and, and wants to use it really to establish their own platform. And this has happened, I explained this to them, like if you wanna be the person at the conference that everybody wants to talk to, because you do the podcast to get zillions of downloads, well, I can do that for you, but you've got to put in the effort. I can't make that happen. You have to do that. I'll help you, but you have to do that. And it's not everybody that wants to do that. So, you know, as I say that it's a kind of classic 80-20 rule kind of thing about 20% of them work out really well. And the other 80%, they do some interviews and then decide that it doesn't yeah. fit very well in their life. Yeah, it's, it's, I've noticed in my business life that very often you, there are some companies which have a great product and are rather weak in sales and marketing and other companies that have a great sales and marketing and have quite a weak 
product and there's a sort of there's a kind of equilibrium and you're definitely in the category of having a really good product and you you're you're not under pressure to get out there and find new hosts at all however if we're thinking about it strategically and I get involved in the future it might well be the case that the the important thing to do is to look at gaps of where don't we have important domain areas of academic research and go out and and it's it will require a different process of a sort of headhunter it's the difference between letting people apply on the website and being a headhunter thinking this woman would be ideal for our our yeah and i and i and i do poach i mean i do poach that's not the right word i do approach people so for, often there are people that pitch me books so a woman pitched me a book it was about uh, alcohol addiction and recovery and she had a book and I looked her up and I sort of scouted her out a little bit and I saw that she had a podcast of her own. So then I wrote her an email and I said, you know, we have this channel on the New Books Network called New Books and Drugs Addiction and Recovery that I think would fit your profile perfectly well. And I would love to have you as a host. I said these pretty frequently because there's just that confluence of interest. Artie has a podcast, interested in the subject area, area expert. So I just opened this dialogue with her. Will she come on? Probably not. But it, she is the kind of person that we're looking for. And I've gotten a lot of hosts in that way. Yes. Yeah, so, so you are being proactive. So uh, apologies for insinuating. Well, no, you, I'm not, no apologies. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, right. You didn't know. No. But we did. Yeah, we do, you know, and we open new channels. So, for example, these neurologists, really, they approached me and they said, you don't have this. And we have psychology and we have psychotherapy, but this is serious sort of brain science in a sort of biochemical sense. And you're right. You're right. We don't have it. And we should have it. And, uh, and of course, my question was, will you do it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they said, yes. So we're going to have new books in neuroscience. Have you automated your onboarding, like reco recorded, like trainer videos and stuff like oh, that? Oh, you see, that's one of the again to go back to the the fundraising part. And you've seen this pitch, or you've seen the the deck. One of the things I want to do is spend some money having a series of videos for new hosts because it's actually a quite a high touch process now. I have to talk to them on the phone. I have to walk them through shared screens. I have to do lots of things, which would be better done if I just had a list of videos where I could point them and say, okay, go watch these videos. And if you have any questions, then we can talk. I don't have that. It would be very useful. And so investing, you know, 30 or $50,000 and having them done really well, I, I think would be a good investment. I think it would improve the quality of the product. One, one of the challenges for us is audio quality, because if you have 300 hosts, you have 300 different studios, you know, different setups, you have different computers of different generations, you have people of different sort of computer literacy, you often have people that have never recorded at all, some of them don't, you know, know what Dropbox is, and I, that's fine, I, I totally get that, they, they know everything about, I don't know, Aramaic, but I have to teach them all that stuff. And, and I do it essentially by hand, and it takes a lot of time. So having a system in, in which to onboard these people where they watched a lot of videos, I love videos actually for learning things. I just use them all the time. I think that would be a very worthwhile investment for us. I, I don't think you should spend thirty dollars to $50,000. I think you should probably use a tool like Zoom, which is 20 Yeah, right. I, I, don't know, I don't know how we would do it, but uh, it, it would, I don't know, even know what it would cost or who would do it. But I would want them to be of a certain quality. But certainly that i mean again that's what to do with time uh what to do with time if you had some money so you could pay someone else to do things that they can do so you can do things that 
maybe other people could do it, but you'll definitely be the best person for training someone. So. Oh yeah, I I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to talk briefly before we move on to close. By the way, we have one question on the on the Facebook Live is asking ask him to say something in Russian or introduce himself in Russian. I suspect there's someone watching who doesn't believe, <laughs> doesn't believe that you speak uh, Russian. Okay, as someone who's <laughs> Polish, I could figure out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there you can kind of get a little of it. Yeah. Get a okay, so thank thank you for doing that. That sure. uh, that that was for the benefit of Kasiarna Kaliska. I'm not sure. I don't know if you're still watching, but um, <laughs> I, I only saw that just now. Uh, I just want to talk briefly about how you make money, your business model, because I think you may have mentioned it at the start, but perhaps I wasn't listening. Can you just, say, in terms of where the money comes from, how do you get any dollars coming in through the door? Yeah, it's advertising, essentially. Advertising and sponsorship deals, which are advertising uh, at one remove. So it's straightforward advertising of two types. One is programmatic advertising. And so we're part of a network uh, with uh, an organization called LitHub in New York. I suggest people go look it up. LitHub, it's a great organization and they are on Megaphone. And Megaphone is a service that essentially brokers ads for podcasts. They host them and they broker ads. And these ads are pumped in uh, depending on your demographic. We happen to have a very good demographic because the people that listen to the New Books Network uh, are very well educated and have high incomes and, and some uh, wealth. So that's one way. And then the other is, uh, I guess I would call them bespoke ads or ordered ads. And these are companies that come to us often through a third party and say, we would like to uh, advertise on the New Books Network. Would you, Marshall, do a read? And so, for example, we just did one for Random House, uh, Penguin Random House Audio. They do audiobooks. And so we're kind of perfect for their audience. Probably it's the case that many people that listen to New Books Network, they listen to podcasts, they might listen to audiobooks. So the people at Penguin uh, Random House Audio approached me through a third party and said, would you like to do a read or an ad for us? And we'll pay you a certain amount of money per thousand impressions. The, the platform we're on, and this is one thing that gives us a huge advantage over, say, print, can tell people exactly how many impressions they get. And they can't be skipped very easily, at least, because either at the front or in the mid part of the interview. So you're going to end up listening to them. And so you add all that up and uh, essentially you, you have a very compelling ad. Uh, in the, they're not very long. They're usually 30 seconds to a minute. And if it's for me, it sounds kind of personal. I am the voice of the New Books Network. I, I do shout outs to the audience pretty often so they know who I am. Um, and so uh, in the advertising world, that's thought to be a kind of premium product. If you have what's called a host red ad. In this case, it's an editor red ad. And we put the advertisements over the entire network. So even though we have 84 podcasts and 7,500 episodes, uh, we can put the ad on every single episode. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that, that's a great efficiency for us. Sure. And, and approximately how many downloads or listeners do you get a month at the moment? Well, it's a listener question is hard. Uh, downloads a month, we get about 800,000 downloads a month. Uh, it sort of fluctuates a little bit. It's pushing toward a million a month. Uh, listeners, I, I, you have to differentiate between subscribers and drive-by listeners. Uh, I would say that we probably have 100,000 subscribers and maybe twice that number, three times that number drive-by listeners. That is people that just find an episode and listen to it. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And uh, just finally, um, as we come towards the close, if someone listening to this is thinking of being an entrepreneur or doing their own thing, are there any lessons you've learned, mistakes you've made, or things that you wish you'd known 20, 30 years ago when you were starting out or any words of encouragement or discouragement, <laughs> just like you feel that, well, you know that because you've spent since your mid thirties to your late fifties. Well, I suppose you weren't, you were also having a day job as a professor. So it wasn't yeah. thing. but well, is there any words of advice or things you'd like to share with my listeners? I think actually I got this through a common acquaintance of ours, Brooke Allen, you really have to think about becoming a solution to somebody's problem. You need to recognize a problem somebody has. And then you think about ways to solve that problem for them in a way that is efficient enough and comfortable enough for you to actually do it. And uh, I suggest doing it yourself to begin with. Don't go looking for money or making excuses about how you don't have any. Do it on a very small scale to see if it's practicable and you're comfortable doing the work because you're going to do most of it to begin with. But those two things, the kind of identify the problem and then implement a solution, even at a very small scale, are absolutely essential. Because if you do that and you get that feedback, like I did initially when I started New Books in History, people listened and I can't tell you how happy I was. <laughs> I was just like, this was the greatest thing since the birth of my children. I just was so happy that people listened to my podcast. And that just kept me going for a long time. I got a lot of gratification from it. Did it make any money? No, it didn't. But it was working and people listened. And I was very, I just felt very, I felt buoyed by by this experience. So I, I think those are the th those are the things that that and perseverance. I mean, it, it takes a long time. It's it's not easy, you know. And uh, it takes a long time. You have you have to stick with it, and and uh, you just have to stick with it, especially if you're in the industry I'm in, because it, it just doesn't happen overnight. You got to win people's trust, and that is not an easy thing. Winning people's trust. You mentioned earlier about you what you improved your people skills, and I couldn't emphasize more that. You know, even if you're not a particular people person, even if you're not the most sociable person, you have to be aware of the fact that this is this this matters so much. You have to oh. learn, you have to learn how to be good at it, even if it's going against yeah, your, right. your even if you'd, you'd much rather have a row and make sarcastic remarks. Yeah, that's exactly that's a, that is so right. I agree with you completely. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. the thing the thing the thing is, I, I always you know, I say podcasting, despite what you might have heard, is a retail business. You will answer every single email that a listener sends you, every single one, <laughs> because that's how you develop a good reputation. You're the guy that always answers the emails, right? Uh, Marshall's always, you send me an email, I will answer you. I will. <laughs> um, and, and so it really is a retail business in a way. Uh, and the hosts know who I am. I'm very transparent about who I am. Listeners know who I am. I'm very transparent about it. I, I'm very transparent about the way the business runs. I'm very transparent about the mission of the business. It's public education. I don't have anything more to say about it. Uh, and uh, and I just continue to do this work. And, and I'm nice to be, you know, I'm nice to people as I do it. Uh, it's easy to do because I like doing it, right? I don't feel like I'm, you know, I'm being bridled by anyone or being whipped. So, so it's easy to be nice to people. Marshall, it's been a pleasure having you on the on on the show, and I like having people who are very successful in their 
their thing, no matter how niche it is, because I think niche niche businesses are much more accessible than making planes or yeah that's that's a a hard nut to crack (laughs) yeah and you built it up over years um if anyone listening wants to get in touch with you and i was going to suggest you might want to have an intern program because that's a very low cost way of developing an organization make mistakes with hiring if anyone wants to get in touch with you either with book ideas or to be a host or to somehow work with you what's the best way of finding you uh, it's very easy. I'm all. You can just type in Marshall Poe in Google, and you'll find me everywhere. I don't. I have never used a pseudonym in my life. Uh, and you can write me at marshallpoe at newbooksnetwork.com, and I will answer your email. I promise. That's, that's a big <laughs> promise. Um, well, I, I, any any closing comments or things? No, like- I just want to thank you very much for having me on. It's really been a great conversation. I enjoy talking about the New Books Network a lot, and I and, and you know it's kind of my life's work, and um, I'm. I'm just very happy to be able to talk about it. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.